0: Chapter 16. I woke up with someone shaking my shoulder and someone else holding the back of my head against a running band saw. Harry, Molly said. She was speaking through some kind of megaphone pressed directly against the side of my head, evidently while pounding my skull with the pointy end of a claw hammer. Hey, boss, can you hear me? Ow, I said. What happened? Ow, I repeated, annoyed as if it should have been explanation enough. Molly let out an exasperated, worried sound. Do I need to take you to the hospital? No, I croaked. Aspirin, some water, and stop screaming. I'm barely whispering, she said, and got up. Her combat boots slammed down on the floor in great Godzilla-sized rolls of thunder as she went up the stair steps. Bob, I said as soon as she was gone, what happened? I'm not sure, Bob said, keeping his voice down. Either she's been working out, or else she started using some kind of cosmetics on her arms. She still had some baby fat when she got the tattoos, and that's always bound to make any kind of changes more noticeable. And not her, I growled, images of genuine mayhem floating through my agonized brain. Me. Oh, Bob said. Something hit the model hard. There was an energy surge. Boom, the psychic backlash lit up your mental fuse box. How bad? Hard to say. How many fingers am I holding up? I sighed. How bad is little Chicago, Bob? Oh, you've got to be more specific with this stuff, Harry. Could be worse. A week to fix at most. I grunted. Everything's too loud and bright. I tested my arms and legs. It hurt to move them. An odd and stretchy kind of pain, but they moved. What happened exactly? You got lucky, is what. Something you met out there threw a big blast of psychic energy at you. But it had to come at you through your threshold and the model. The threshold weakened it, and little Chicago shorted out when the blast hit. Or, or what, I asked. Or you wouldn't have that headache, Bob said. Then his eyelights winked out. Molly's boots clumped back down the stairs. She set down on the table a couple of fresh candles she'd brought, took a deep breath, closed her eyes for a moment, and then carefully used the same spell I did to light them. The light speared into my brain and hurt a lot. I flinched and threw my arm across my face. Sorry, she said. I wasn't thinking. I couldn't even see you down here and next time just shove some pencils into my eyes, I muttered a minute later. Sorry, Harry, she said. The aspirin? I held out a hand. She pressed a bottle of aspirin into it and then pressed a cold glass into my other hand. I opened the aspirin with my teeth, dumped several into my mouth, and chugged them down with the water. Exhausted from this monumental effort, I lay on the floor and felt somewhat sorry for myself until, after several more mercilessly regular minutes, the painkiller started kicking in. Molly, I said. Were we supposed to have a lesson today? No, she said, but Sergeant Murphy called our house looking for you. She said you weren't answering the phone. I thought I should come over and check on you. I grunted. Good call. Any trouble getting through the wards? No, not this time. Good. I opened my eyes slowly until they started getting used to the glare of the candles. Mouse, Mouse probably needs you to let him out. I heard a thumping sound and squinted up the stairs. Mouse was crouched at the top, somehow managing to look concerned. I'm fine, you big pansy, I said. Go on. Molly started up the staircase and then froze, staring back down at little Chicago. I squinted at her, then rose and squinted at the table. There was a hole melted in the metal table, not far from the spot where Greycloak had entered undertown. One of the buildings was half slagged the pewter melted into a messy runnel that coursed down the hole in the table like dribbled wax. There was a layer of black soot over everything within several inches of the hole in the table. If the table hadn't taken the magical blow, it would have been my head with the hole burned in it. That had been part of the purpose in creating Little Chicago, as a tool and a safety measure for working that kind of magic. All the same, it was a sobering thing to see. I swallowed, cowl, it had been cowl. I'd heard the hatred and venom in his voice, the familiarity, and the overwhelming power of his magic had been unmistakable. He'd survived the dark hallow. He was working with this circle, who were almost certainly the Black Council, and there was some kind of larger mischief afoot in Chicago than I had suspected. Oh Yeah, This whole situation was definitely starting to make me nervous. I turned back to Molly and said, Like I said, this thing is dangerous, grasshopper, so no playing with it until I say so. Got it. Molly swallowed. Got it. Go on, take care of Mouse. Do me a favor and call Murphy's cell phone. Ask her to come here. Do you need me to help you today? She asked. Like, go with you and stuff? I looked at her, then at the table then back at her. Just asking, Molly said defensively and hurried on up the stairs. By the time I'd gotten a shower, shaved and climbed into fresh clothes, I felt almost human, though I still had a whale of a headache. Murphy arrived shortly after. What the hell happened to you, she said by way of greeting. Took a psychic headbutt from cowl, I said. Murphy greeted Mouse, scratching him under the chin with both hands. What's a cowl? I grunted, right, forgot. When I met cowl, you were in Hawaii with your boy toy. Murph gave me a smug smile, Kincaid isn't a boy toy. He's a man toy, definitely a man toy. Molly lying on the floor with her feet up on the wall while she read, dropped her book onto her face. She fumbled it back into her hands then tried to appear uninterested in the conversation. It would have been more convincing if she weren't holding the book upside down. Long story short, I told her, Cowl is a wizard. Human? Murphy asked. Pretty sure, but I've never seen his face. All I know about him is that he's stronger than me. He's better than me. I stood up to him in a fair fight and got lucky enough to survive it. Murphy frowned. Then how'd you beat him? I stopped fighting fair and bumped his elbow while he was handling supernatural high explosives. Boom, I figured he was dead. Murphy sat down in one of my easy chairs, frowning. Okay, she said, better give me the whole thing. I rubbed at my aching head and started from where I'd left Murphy yesterday, up until the end of my confrontation with Cowell. I left out some of the details uh, about Elaine and everything about the circle, That was information too dangerous to spread around. Hell, I wish I didn't know about it myself. Scavis Murphy mused aloud. I've heard that somewhere before. It's one of the greater houses of the White Court, I said, nodding. Wraith, Scavis, and Malvora are the big three. Right, Murphy said. Psychic vampires. Wraith feed on lust, Malvora on fear. How about these Scavis? Pain, I said, or despair, depending on how you translate some of the texts the council has on them. And suicide, Murphy said, is the ultimate expression of despair. With a mind like that, I said, you could be a detective. We were quiet for a minute before Murphy said, let me see if I've got this right. This scavis is in town. According to your ex, the private investigator Anna Ash hired, He's killed women in four other cities, and he's doing it again here. Four so far, and Anna's meant to be number five. Yeah, I said. Meanwhile, this gray cloak who works for Cowl is in town doing more or less the same thing, but you don't think he's here to help the scavis, whoever he is. But you do think he's working against the killer, along with this passenger, whoever he is. You think those two left the clues you found on the bodies to pull you into an investigation and take out the scavis. Even better, I said, I think I know who Passenger was. Who? Murphy asked. Beckett, I said. It makes sense. He's got his wife on the inside as an information source. He's gone up against me before and walked away. And I cost him years of his life and a lucrative share of a criminal empire. He's got plenty of reasons not to like me. That's who Gray Cloak the Malvora was talking to. Whoa, Gray Cloak the Malvora? How'd you get that? Because, I said. He talked about sharing some tastes with the scavis when it came to letting the prey anticipate what was coming before the kill. The Malvora do it so their prey will feel more fear. The scavis do it so that they'll be more tired, be more ready to give in to despair. Murphy nodded, lips pursed. And the white court loves manipulating everything indirectly, using others to do their dirty work for them. Like using me to wipe out his Scavus competition, I said. Which makes sense, because Malvora and Scavus are rivals. Right, I said. And I'm fairly confident in my guess, just like I'm fairly confident that Beckett must be our passenger. That's a sound theory, Dresden, Murphy said. Thank you, I know. But Beckett died almost seven years ago. He was killed in prison. I figure Beckett must have made a deal with the Malvora, and I blinked. He what? Died, Murphy said. There was a riot. Three prisoners were killed, several injured. He was one of them. As near as anyone can tell, he was standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. A prisoner was wrestling for a guard's gun. It discharged and killed Beckett instantly. Hmm, I said, frowning. I hate it when the real world ignores a perfectly logical, rational assumption. He faked it? She shook her head. I looked into it, and I talked to the guard. There was an autopsy, an identification of the body from his family, a funeral, the whole nine yards. He's dead, Harry. Well, damn it, I said, and rubbed at my headache. He made sense. That's life, Murphy said. So, this hidey hole you found. Long gone by now, I said. Might be worth going anyway, if you take crypto here with you. She leaned down and planted a kiss on top of Mouse's head. My dog gets more play than me, sheesh. Maybe Gray Cloak the theoretical Malvora left a good scent behind. Worth a shot, I guess, I said. But I'm pretty sure he's going to be thorough enough to remove that too. Who goes around removing their scent from places, Murphy asked. Vampires, they can track that way, just like mouse. Oh, right, Murphy sighed. Another burned building. Not, I began, not his fault, Molly said. Not your fault, Murphy said. I know, but it's going to look awfully odd. My car gets firebombed. A building less than a block away gets firebombed a few hours later, I grunted. Same device? What do you think? Same device. Murphy nodded. I'm sure it will be. It's going to take them time to figure it out, though. Were you seen? Me and about a million other people, I said. That's something, at least. But a lot of people are going to be asking questions before long. The sooner we get this thing put to bed, the better. I grimaced. I shouldn't have gone for the subtle maneuver last night. I should have smashed him to paste right there. I don't have any way to find him now, and he's aware that we're looking. Yeah, but Greycloak isn't our first problem, Murphy said. He's a sideshow. Scavis is the real killer, right? Yeah, I said quietly, right. And we've got no clue who or where he is, Murphy frowned. But he's a vampire, right? I mean, you can't tell if someone's a vampire, can't you? It isn't so simple with the white court, I said. They hide themselves a lot better than any other breed. I had no idea what Thomas was when I met him, and you remember talking to Darby Crane. Yeah. Did you get vampire off him? Mostly I got player, Murphy said. But you knew he was really Madrigal Wraith. I guessed, I corrected her. Probably because I unconsciously recognized the family resemblance to Lord Wraith. That's why I stopped you from touching him. There was no magical tip off about it. I frowned. Hell, I wouldn't be shocked if they had some kind of ability to cloud their prey's judgment. When Inari Wraith tried to feed on me, even though I was in their freaking house, even though I knew she was a baby succubus and in my room, it never really occurred to me that she might be dangerous to me until it was too late. Just like that never occurred to me about Crane, Murphy said. So the scavis, he could be anyone. I'm pretty sure he's not me, I said. I'm almost as sure he's not you. Are you sure you're a professional investigator? I sometimes wonder. What about Thomas, Murphy asked. He's more of a hired thug than a Seamus, Murphy glared. It drew a little bit of a smile from me, but it faded quickly in the light of reality. I left messages, nothing yet. That's not what I meant either, Murphy said quietly. Could he still be involved? Could he have been the passenger? He wasn't. Again, she held up a hand. Harry, is it possible? Look, we know the killer is a scavis. We know what Gray Cloak thinks, Murphy corrected me. But you're forgetting something. What? That at least one of these women was killed in the throes of supernatural passion. Not amidst fear, not amidst despair. I scowled at her. Is it physically possible, Harry? Possible, that's all I'm asking. I suppose, I said quietly. But Thomas isn't Grey Cloak's partner. What if, I couldn't finish the sentence. What if your passenger has him? Murphy asked What if the endeavor He's talking about Is pressing Thomas For some kind of information I grimaced Thomas should have been In touch by now We've got a little time Greycloak thought It would be another day or so Before the Scavis moved again Right? Yeah So far you think He's been smart about most things Maybe he's smart about that too We can hope I said What did you find out About Jessica Blanche? Still working on it I've got feelers out, but I'll need to follow up with some legwork. I blew out of breath. And I need to get in touch with Elaine and the Ordo. Maybe I can get Helen Beckett to talk. And I can make some calls to other wardens. Maybe someone's heard something about recent white court activities. Murphy rose. Sounds like we have a plan. If we repeat it often enough, maybe we'll even believe it, I said. Let's go. Chapter 17. Ramirez's contact number went to a restaurant his family ran in eastern Los Angeles. I left a message with someone whose English sounded like a second or third language. It took Ramirez only about ten minutes to call me back. White Court, my fellow warden said. Can't think as I've heard anything about them lately, Harry. How about a professional wizard investigator, I asked him. Works out of Los Angeles. Elaine Mallory, he asked tall, pretty, smart, and nearly as charming as myself? That's the one, I said. What do you know about her? Far as I know, she's straight, he said. Moved to town five or six years ago, college in San Diego, and working for an investigative agency out here. She's got a decent grounding in thaumaturgy from somewhere, but when I ran her through the standard tests, she didn't score quite high enough to be considered for council membership. He was quiet for a second before saying, in a tone of forced cheer, "'Unless we keep on losing people to the vamps, "'in which case I guess we might lower our standards.' Uh "'Uh-huh,' I said. "'But you think she knows what she's doing?' "'Well,' Ramirez drawled. "'I hinted that she might want to advertise "'as something other than a wizard, eventually. "'If we get the time to look away from the war, "'some hidebound dinosaur might take exception "'to someone claiming the title.' I snorted. Don't call me a dinosaur. It isn't fair to the dinosaurs. What did a dinosaur ever do to you? Other than give me a ride right next to this big, skinny lunatic? Mallory's not stupid. And she's done people some good out here, Ramirez said. Lost kids, especially. Couple of exorcisms I wouldn't have had time to handle. Maybe she can be of some help to you. Though I've got one reservation about her. What's that? I asked. Her taste in men... I keep asking her out, and she's turned me down about a dozen times now. Shocking, I said. I know, Ramirez replied. Makes me wonder how smart she could really be. Why? I gave him the brief on what I knew about the murders, and on what Elaine had told me about the other cities. Someone's framing the wardens, he said. Looks that way. Sow seeds of distrust and all that. Five cities. Bastards. He paused to say something off the phone and then told me, hang on, I'm pulling the file on recent white court reports. I waited a few more minutes, then he came back and said, according to what we heard out on this end, the white king has met with emissaries from the council under a flag of truce and declared a temporary ceasefire. He's agreed to approach the Reds about sitting down to negotiate an end of the war. I've met him, I said, Kissinger, he ain't. Gandhi, neither. Yeah, sort of makes you wonder what he's getting out of the war ending, don't it? I grunted. There's not a lot of love lost between the Reds and the Whites. A ceasefire won't cost him anything. His people don't get involved in the messy stuff anyway. Ramirez let out a thoughtful hum. The way you tell it, looks like maybe not everyone in the White Court agrees with his take on the war. They're pretty factional, triumvirate of major houses. Wraith happens to be on top right now. If Wraith is pushing for peace, it would be consistent for the other major houses to oppose it. Gotta love those vampires, so arbitrarily contrary. Say that five times fast, I said. He did, flawlessly, rolling the R's as he went. See there, he said, that's why the ladies love me. It's not love, Carlos, it's pity. As long as the pants come off, he said cheerfully. Then his voice turned more sober. Dresden, I've been meaning to call you. Just wanted to see how you were doing. You know, since New Mexico. I'm good, I told him. I'm fine. "Uh Uh-huh, Ramirez said. He sounded skeptical. Listen, I said, forget New Mexico. I've forgotten it. We need to move on. Focus on what's in front of us right now. Sure, he said, without conviction. You want to fill in the captain or should I? Go ahead. Will do, he said. You need any backup out there? Why, I asked. You got nothing to pay attention to where you are? He sighed. Yeah, well, all the same. If the whites are trying to shut down the peace talks, I could pry a few of the boys loose to come help you boot some head. Except I don't know whose head it is or how to boot it, I said. I know, but if you need help, it's here. Thanks. Watch your ass, Dresden, he said. I'd tell you to do the same, but you probably gaze at your own ass in admiration all the time anyway. With an ass like mine? Who wouldn't, Ramirez said. Vaya con Dios. Happy trails. I hung up the phone and leaned back in the chair, rubbing at my still aching head. I closed my eyes and tried to think for a minute. I thought about how much my head hurt, which was non-productive. Harry? Molly asked me. Hmm? Can I ask you something? Sure. Um. She was quiet for a moment, as though thinking about her words before she spoke. That got my attention. I'm just wondering why you were asking Warden Ramirez about Elaine Mallory. I closed my eyes and tried thinking again. I mean... Sergeant Murphy said she was your ex, but you asked about her as if you didn't know her. I mumbled something. So I figure that means that you do know her, and you wanted to know what Warden Ramirez knew about her without him knowing that you already knew her. She took a deep breath and said, you're keeping secrets from the wardens. I sighed. For years, kid, years and years. But I'm under the doom of Damocles, and that means you are too. This is the kind of thing that could make them decide to invoke it. So, um why are you doing it? Does it matter, I asked. Well, she said, her tone cautiously diffident. Since I could get beheaded over this just as much as you can, it matters to me. And I think that maybe I deserve to know. I started to growl at her that she didn't. I stopped myself because she had a point, damn it. Regardless of how inconvenient I thought it, she did have an undeniable right to ask me about it. I was an orphan, I told her. A little while after my magic came to me, I got adopted by a man named DeMorn. He's the one who gave me most of my training. He adopted Elaine, too. We grew up together, each other's first love. Molly set her book aside and sat up, listening to me. DuMorn was a warlock himself, black wizard as bad as they come. He planned on training us up to be his personal enforcers. Trained, strong wizards under mental compulsion to be loyal to him. He nailed Elaine with it. I got suspicious and fought him. I killed him. Molly blinked. But the first law. Exactly, I said. That's how I wound up living under the doom of Damocles myself. Ebenezer McCoy mentored me, saved my life. The way you did for me, she said quietly. Yeah, I squinted at the empty fireplace. Justin burned, and I thought Elaine did too. Turned out years later that she had survived and was in hiding. And she never told you? Molly demanded. What a bitch. I gave the apprentice a lopsided smile. The last time she'd seen me, I'd been busy murdering the only thing like a real parent she'd ever had, and had apparently tried to kill her too. It isn't a simple situation, Molly. But I still don't get why you lied about her. Because I had a bad time of it, coming out from under DeMorn's corpse the way I did. If the wardens knew that she'd been there too, and fled the council rather than coming out to them, I shrugged. Looks like she's managed to convince Ramirez that she doesn't have enough power to be considered for the council. But she does, Molly asked. She's nearly as strong as I am, I said quietly. Makes up for it in grace. I'm not sure what would happen if the wardens learned to mourn had a second apprentice, but there would be trouble. I'm not going to make that choice for her. In case I haven't told you this before, Molly said, the wardens are a fine bunch of assholes present company excluded. There isn't any easy way to do their job, I said, before amending our job. Like I said, kid, nothing is simple. I pushed myself slowly to my feet and found my keys and Mouse's lead. Come on, I told her. I'll drop you off at your place. Where are you going? To talk to the Ordo, I said. Anna's got them all holed up with Elaine. Why don't you just call them? This is a sneak attack, I said. I don't want to warn Helen Beckett that I'm on the way. She's got an angle in this, I'm sure of it. It's easier to get people to talk if you get them off balance. Molly frowned at me. You sure you don't need my help? I paused to glance at her, then at the bead bracelet on her wrist. She clenched her jaw, took off the bracelet, and held it up with defiant determination, staring at the beads three minutes and two beads later, she gave it up, gasping and sweating at the effort. She looked bitterly frustrated and disappointed. Nothing is simple, I told her quietly and put the bracelet back on her wrist for her. And nothing much is easy either. Be patient, give it time. Easy for you to say, she said, and stomped out to the car, leading mouse. She was wrong, of course. It wasn't easy. What I really wanted to do was get down a little food and go to bed until my head felt better. That wasn't an option for me. Whoever the scavis was, and whatever he was up to, there wasn't a lot of time to figure it out and stop him before he added another victim to his tally. Chapter 18 The Amber Inn is a rarity in downtown Chicago, a reasonably priced hotel. It isn't large or particularly fancy, and it wasn't designed by an architect with three names. No one infamous has owned it, lived in it, or been machine-gunned to death there. Thus, stripped of anything like a good excuse to stick it to the customer, one needn't schedule a visit to a loan officer in tandem with making a reservation, even though the Amber Inn is fairly central to Chicago. It was the kind of place I always tried to pick on the occasions my work had taken me to another town for a client's business. My job, in cases like that, is investigating, not checking out four-star hotels. The most important thing was to be close to where I would be working and that I not run up an unmanageable bill. I've heard that some private investigators make it a point to stay somewhere nice at the client's expense, but it always seemed unprofessional to me and a bad way to conduct business in the long term. It stood to reason that Elaine would have chosen it for similar reasons. I didn't ask after her at the desk. I didn't need to. I just told Mouse, find him. Mouse sniffed the air, and we started walking down halls like we owned the place. That's always important, the confidence. It keeps people from getting suspicious about why you're stalking around the building. And even when it doesn't deter them, it makes them respond more cautiously. Mouse finally stopped at a door, and I extended my hand, half closing my eyes, feeling for magic. There was a ward over the door. It wasn't terribly fancy or solid, it couldn't be, without a threshold to use as a foundation, but it was exceedingly well crafted, and I was sure it was Elaine's work. The spell looked like it would release only a tiny bit of energy, probably a pulse of light or some kind of audible sound that would alert her to company. I debated for a moment, making a big bad wolf entrance and decided against it. It wouldn't be terribly polite to Elaine, and the only person I wanted to scare was Helen Beckett, assuming she was there. Besides which, tipped off by her alarm and wary about a murderer, Elaine might well send a lightning bolt through the doorway before she had a chance to see who was there. I knocked, nothing changed. But my instincts warned me that someone was on the other side of the door. Not magic, just the sudden absence of the simple, solitary feel one gets when standing alone in an empty house. I sensed a little stirring of the magic in the ward. Then the door rattled and swung open, revealing Elaine standing on the other side, one corner of her mouth tilted up in amusement. "Oh, I get it, I said, not a ward. A peephole. Sometimes a girl's got to improvise, she said. You look awful. Long night. It must have been. I thought you were going to call. I was in the neighborhood. She pursed her lips in speculation. Were you? I saw the wheels turning in her head for a moment, and then she nodded once and lowered her voice. Which one? Beckett, I murmured back. She's here. I nodded, and she opened the door the rest of the way, at the same time I stepped through it. She slipped to one side as I walked briskly into the room. It was clean, plain, a kind of mini suite with a queen bed, a couch, and a coffee table. Priscilla sat on the couch in a pea green turtleneck in a scratchy looking wool skirt, and scowled at me in disapproval of Dickensian proportion. Abby and Toto occupied the floor, where Toto was engaged in mortal combat with a white athletic sock he had pulled part way from the foot of his plump little owner, who sat looking distracted and distant. Anna sat on the edge of the bed, dark eyes tired, bloodshot, and serious, while Helen stood by the window again, holding the curtain aside just enough to gaze out. Toto promptly abandoned the field of battle upon spying mouse and walked in a little nervous circle within a couple of inches of Abby's lap. Mouse went over to trade sniffs with the little dog and promptly settled down to begin grooming Toto with long licks. Ladies, I said, then after a brief pause added, Mrs. Beckett. She didn't look at me, she just smiled and stared out the window. Yes, Mr. Dresden, what do you know, I asked her. I beg your pardon, she said. You know something about this, and you aren't talking, spill. I can't imagine what you mean, she said. Anna Ash rose and frowned. Mr. Dresden, surely you aren't accusing Helen of being involved in this business. I'm pretty sure I am, I said. Do they know about the first time we met, Helen? Have you told them? That drew looks from everyone in the room. Helen, Abby said after a moment, what is he talking about? Go ahead, Mr. Dresden, Helen said, very faint, very dry amusement, giving her monotone a little life. I wouldn't dream of cheating you of the satisfaction of looking down at one less righteous than yourself. What is she talking about, Priscilla demanded. She glared at me, probably with her mind already made up as to what she was going to think of me regardless of what I said. It's nice to know that some things in life are consistent, because Beckett was disappointing me here. Her associates didn't know about her past. By revealing it, I was probably about to destroy whatever life she'd built for herself since she regained her freedom, something that would be a terrible injury to most people in her circumstances. She'd lost her daughter years ago, lost her husband shortly after, had been sent to prison and permanently stained with the guilt of her crimes. I had expected her to attempt to evade me, to protest her innocence, or accuse me of lying. Failing that, I thought the next most likely reaction would be for her to panic and flee, or else panic and shut her mouth entirely. Depending on how badly she thought I was about to screw up her life, it was even possible that she might produce a weapon and attempt to murder me. Instead, she just, stood there, apparently unafraid, a quiet little smile hovering on her lips, unruffled, like some nascent saint before the man who was about to martyr her, none of which added up. I hate it when things don't add up. But now that I'd forced the confrontation, here, in front of the rest of the ordo, I'd destroy any credibility I had if I backed out, which is what the whole mess was about, someone attempting to destroy the council's credibility. I backed off on the aggression and tried to make myself sound polite and compassionate, yet serious. Did any of you know that Miss Beckett is a felon? Priscilla's eyes grew wide behind her glasses. She looked from me to Helen to Anna. Helen continued watching out the window, that same little smile in place. Anna was the first to speak. No, she said, frowning. She hasn't told us that. Beckett might as well have been deaf for all the reaction she showed. She was part of a cult headed up by a sorcerer I had to take down several years ago, I said. I delivered it flat, without emphasis. She participated in ritual magic that created a drug that hurt a lot of people, and helped out with other rites that murdered the sorcerer's criminal rivals. There was a shocked silence. But, but... Abby stammered, but that's the first law, the first law. Helen, is that true? Not quite, Helen said. He didn't mention that the specific rituals used were sexual in nature. She touched her tongue to her upper lip. Strike that, depraved and indiscriminately sexual in nature. Priscilla stared at Helen. For God's sake, Helen, why? Beckett looked away from the window for the first time since I'd arrived, and the emptiness in her eyes was replaced with an impossibly remote, cold fury. Her voice lowered to a murmur as hard as a sheet of glacial ice. I had reason to do so. I didn't meet that frozen gaze. I didn't want to see what was behind it. You've got a record, Mrs. Beckett. You've helped in supernatural murders before. Maybe you're doing it again. She shrugged, her expression becoming lifeless again. And maybe I'm not. Are you? I said. She went back to staring out the window. What's the point in answering, Warden? It's obvious you've already tried and convicted me. If I tell you I'm involved, you will believe me guilty. If I tell you I'm not involved, you will believe me guilty. The only thing I can do is deny you your precious moral justification. She lifted a hand to her lips and pantomimed turning a key and throwing it away. Silence fell. Anna got up and walked to Beckett. Anna put a hand on her shoulder and tugged gently until the other woman turned around. Don't answer, Anna said quietly. There's no need for it, as far as I'm concerned. And I. Priscilla said. Of course you aren't involved, Abby said. Beckett looked around the room, at each of them in turn. Her mouth quivered for an instant, and her eyes glistened. She blinked them several times, but a single tear escaped and coursed over her cheekbone. She nodded to the ordo once and turned back to the window. Instinct told me that this was not the reaction of a guilty woman, and no one could put on an act that good. Beckett wasn't involved. I was sure of it. Now. Damn it. Detectives are supposed to learn things. All I'd done so far was to unlearn them, and the clock kept right on ticking. Priscilla turned to me, her eyes narrowed. Is there anything else of which you'd like to accuse us? Any other presumptuous bigotry you'd care to share? She built her glare back up into the terawatt range just for me. It made me feel special. Look, I said, I'm trying to help you. Oh, Priscilla said, scorn in her voice. Is that why all those people have been disappearing in the company of a man fitting your description? I started to answer, but she cut me off. Not that I expect you to tell us the truth, unless it serves whatever purpose you truly have in mind. I carefully did not lose my temper and barbecue her stupid face right then and there. Angels weep when someone so perceptive, warm-hearted, and loving turns cynical, Priscilla. Harry, Elaine sighed beside me. I glanced at her. She met my eyes for a moment, and though her lips didn't move, I heard her voice quite distinctly. God knows she makes a fine target of herself, but shooting off your mouth isn't helping. I blinked at her a couple of times and then smiled a little. The communion spell between us was an old one, but once upon a time we'd used it every day. School had been boring as hell, and it beat passing notes. It had also been handy when we'd been staying up past curfew and didn't want to mourn to know we were awake. I put a gentle effort of will behind words and sent them to Elaine. God, I'd forgotten all about this. I haven't done it since I was 16. Elaine showed me her smile, the swift, rare one, the one where her mouth widened and white teeth gleamed and her eyes took on golden highlights. Neither have I. Her expression sobered as she glanced at Priscilla, then back to me. Be gentle, Harry. They're hurting. I frowned at her. What? She shook her head. Look around you. I did, going more slowly this time. My focus on confronting Beckett had prevented me from noticing what else was going on. The room was thick with tension, and something heavy and bitter. Grief? Then I saw what wasn't there. Where's the little brunette? Her name, Priscilla almost snarled, was Olivia. I arched a brow and glanced at Elaine. Was? When we called her last night, she was all right, she told me. When we arrived to pick her up, there was no answer at her door, and no one in her apartment. Then how do you know? Elaine folded her arms, her expression neutral. There are several security cameras around the building and outside. One of them showed her leaving with a very pale, dark-haired man. I grunted. How'd you get to this security footage? Elaine gave me a smile that bared a gratuitous number of teeth. I said, pretty please. I nodded, getting it. You can get more with a kind word and well-applied kinetomancy than with just a kind word. The security guard was a smug little twit, she said. Bruises fade. She produced a couple of sheets of printer paper bearing grainy black and white images. Indeed, I recognized Olivia and her dancer's leotard, even from behind, which was a good angle for her. There was a man walking next to her, He looked to be maybe a tiny bit shy of six feet, had dark, glossy, shoulder-length black hair, and was dressed in jeans and a black tee. I could see his profile in one of the pictures. His head turned toward Olivia. It was my brother. It was Thomas. Chapter 19. Are you sure, Anna Ash? Asked Elaine. Wouldn't we be better off at one of our apartments? They're all warded. Elaine shook her head firmly. The killer knows where you each live. He doesn't know about this place. Stay here, stay quiet, stay together. Our killer hasn't attacked anyone who wasn't alone. And my dog will let you know if there's anything you need to worry about, I added. He'll probably sit on anyone who tries to mess with you. But if he does a lassie act at you and wants you to leave, go with him. Everyone stay together and get somewhere public. Mouse nudged his head under Anna's hand and wagged his tail. Toto dutifully followed Mouse, walking around Anna's ankles, looking up at her until she petted him, too. That got a smile out of her, at least. If we leave, how will we get in touch with you? I'll find you. Just like you found the killer? Priscilla spat. I ignored her with lofty dignity. Elaine didn't. She stepped up to Priscilla and loomed over her. You ungrateful, insufferable, venomous little twit. Shut your mouth. This man is trying to protect you, just like I am. I will thank you to keep a civil tongue in your head while we do our job. Priscilla's face flushed. We aren't paying you to insult or demean us. You aren't paying me enough to get me to tolerate your rudeness either, Elaine said. Keep it up and you won't have to worry about my bill. In fact, I suspect in short order, you'll stop worrying about absolutely everything. Is that a threat? Priscilla snapped. Elaine put a fist on her hip. It's a fact, bitch. Anna stepped in. Priscilla, please. You aren't the one paying her. I am. We need her. She's the professional. If she thinks it's smart to cooperate with Mr. Dresden, that's what we're going to do. And we're going to treat them with professional respect. If you can't manage courtesy, try silence. Priscilla narrowed her eyes at Anna then folded her arms and looked away in capitulation. Elaine nodded at Anna and said, I'm not sure how long we'll be gone. I'll get word to you as soon as I have a better idea. Thank you, Miss Mallory. After a beat, she hurried to add, and thank you, Mr. Dresden. Stay together, I said, and Elaine and I left. We walked together to the parking lot, and on the way, Elaine said, tell me you've gotten a new car. We rounded a corner, and there was the beetle in all its battle-scarred glory. I like this one, I told her, and opened the door for her. You redid the interior, she said, as I got in and started the car. Demons ate the old one. Elaine began to laugh, but then blinked at me. You're being literal? "Uh Uh-huh, fungus demons, right down to the metal. Good God, you live a glamorous life, she said. Elaine, I said, I thought you told me you were going to lie low until you were ready to come out to the council. The friendly, teasing expression on her face faded into neutrality. Is this relevant right now? Yeah, I said. If we're going after him together, yes, it is. I need to know. She frowned at me and then shrugged. I had to do something. There were people all around me getting hurt, being used, Living scared. So I borrowed a page from your book. And you lied to the warden who came to check up on you. You say that like you've always told the wardens everything. Elaine, I began. She shook her head. Harry, I know you. I trust you. But I don't trust the council, and I doubt I ever will. I certainly did not care to be impressed into service as a brand new foot soldier to fight their war with the vampires, which I would have been if I put my full effort into Ramirez's tests. We looked at each other for a moment and I said, please, I'll go with you. I'll support you before the council. She put one of her warm, soft hands over mine and spoke in a quiet, firm voice. No, Harry, I won't allow those men to direct the course of my life. I won't allow them to choose if I will or will not live or choose how. I sighed, you could do so much good. I thought that's what I was doing here, she pointed out. Helping people, doing good. She had a point. The wardens would freak out if you went to them now anyway, I said, and revealed that you've been hiding your talents from them. Yes, she said, they would. Damn it, I said. We could use your help. I don't doubt it, she said. Her eyes hardened and her voice went suddenly cold. But I will not be used. Not by anyone, never again. I blinked and turned to her. She lifted her chin slightly, green eyes bright with unfallen tears. No, Harry. I turned my hand under hers and we intertwined our fingers with the careless ease of an old habit. Elaine, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to push. I hadn't realized. She blinked several times and looked away from me. No, I'm the one who should be sorry. I'm going all neurotic on you here, I don't mean to be. She stared out the window at the city. After you killed DeMorn, I spent a year having a nightmare. The same one, every single night. I was sure that it was true, that he was still alive, that he was coming for me. He wasn't, I told her. I know, she said, I saw him die just as you did. But I was so afraid, she shook her head. I ran to the summer court because of it. I ran, Harry, I couldn't face it. Is that what you're doing, going public, I asked. Facing your past? I have to, she said, her voice growing firmer. It scares the crap out of me all the time. And over the years, I've had problems with crowds, with enclosed spaces, with heights. With wide open spaces, night terrors, panic attacks, paranoia. God, sometimes it seems like there's nothing I haven't had a phobia about. What Elaine had described was about what I would have expected from someone whose mind had been invaded by an outside will. Magic can get you into someone's head, but if you decide to start redecorating to your tastes, there's no way to avoid inflicting damage to their psyche, Depending on several factors, someone who has been put under that kind of control can be left twitchy and erratic at best. And at worst, totally catatonic or completely dysfunctional. And there was the utterly normal element of emotional pain to consider too. Elaine had, in the course of a single evening, lost absolutely everything she loved. Her boyfriend, her adopted father, her home. Losing home, means a lot more to an orphan than it does to most other people. I'm in a position to know. Like me, Elaine had spent most of her childhood bouncing around from one foster home to another, one state-run orphanage to another. Like me, being given a real home, a real house, a real father figure had been a desperate dream come true. It had been a terrible loss to me, and Justin hadn't gotten any hooks into my head, for Elaine- That series of events had been infinitely more painful, infinitely more frightening. I let fear control one part of my life, Elaine said, and it took root and started growing. I had to get involved, Harry. I have to use what I know to change things. If I don't, then all I'll ever be is Dumorn's tool, his terrified little weapon. I will not allow anyone to take control of my life away from me. I can't. She shrugged. And I can't stand by and do nothing either. I threw the tests. I don't regret it. I sure as hell am not going to apologize for it, not to you or to anyone. I grunted. Well, she asked. I think I get it, I said. Are you willing to work with me then? I squeezed her hand a little. Of course. The tension in her shoulders eased and she squeezed my hand back. My turn she said. Your turn? She nodded. You recognized the killer when you looked at the photo. What? I said. No, I didn't. She rolled her eyes. Come on, Harry, it's me. I sighed. Yeah, well. Who is he? She asked. Thomas Wraith, I said. White Court. How do you know him? He's Not many people know that Thomas was my brother. It was safer for both of us to keep that information limited. He's a friend, someone I trust. Trust, Elaine said quietly. I notice you use the present tense. Thomas isn't hurting anyone, I said. He's a vampire, Harry. He hurts someone every time he feeds. He'd been doing quite a lot of that lately. I know Thomas, I maintained. He isn't the killer. Elaine frowned. Treachery hurts, Harry. Believe me, I know. Nothing has proved Thomas is behind these killings, I said. It could be someone else or something else masquerading as him. It isn't as if there aren't plenty of shape-shifting things around that could do it. Little bit of a reach, though, Elaine said. She nodded at the photos where I'd sent them on the dashboard. The simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Sooner or later, I said, I'll have a case where everything is simple. But I don't think this one is it. Elaine exhaled slowly, studying my face. You care about him. No point in denying that. Yeah. He trusts you in return? Yeah. Then why hasn't he explained himself to you? she asked. Why hasn't he gotten in touch with you? I don't know. But I know he's not a killer she nodded slowly. But there he is, with Olivia. Yeah. Then I think you should agree with me that we need to find him. Yeah. Can you? Yep. All right then, she said, and put on her seatbelt. We'll find him. We'll talk to him. I'll try to keep an open mind, she looked at me. But if it turns out to be him, Harry, he's got to be stopped, and I expect you to help me. If it turns out to be him, I said, he'd want me to. Chapter 20. I've been working as a detective in Chicago for a while now. And there's one thing you do a lot more than almost anything else. You find things that get lost. I'd first designed my tracking spell to catch up to the house keys I kept losing when I was about 14. I'd used it a few thousand times now. Sometimes it had helped me find things I really didn't want. Mostly, it helped me get into trouble. This time, I was fairly sure it would do both. I could have used my blood to trace Thomas's probably, but I could use my silver pentacle amulet too. My mother had given me the one I habitually wore and she'd given one to Thomas too. I knew that he wore it just as habitually as I wore mine, and unless someone had taken it away from him, he'd be wearing it now. So I revved up the spell, hung the amulet from the rearview mirror of the blue beetle, and headed out onto the Chicago streets. I kept an eye on my amulet, which leaned slightly, drawn as if by a light magnetic field toward Thomas's amulet. That wasn't a perfect way to track something down. The spell had no concern for streets and traffic flow, for example. But I've been finding things like this for a good while. And I piloted the beetle through the maze of buildings and one way streets that make up the fair city. Elaine watched me in silence the whole while. I knew that she was wondering what I had used to lock on to our apparent abductor murderer. She didn't push though, she just settled down and trusted me. When I finally parked the car and got out, I brought my amulet with me and stared grimly at the necklace, which continued to lean steadily to the east toward the Burnham Harbor piers that stretched out over Lake Michigan. An entire cove had been built into the lake shore and decked out with an array of docks for dozens and dozens of small commercial boats, pleasure craft, and yachts. Boats, I murmured. Why did it have to be boats? What's wrong with boats, Elaine asked. I haven't had a good time on boats, I said. In fact, I haven't had a good time this close to the lake in general. It smells like dead fish and motor oil, Elaine noted. You never did like my cologne. I got my staff out of the car. You need a big stick. Elaine smiled sweetly at me and drew out a heavy chain from her purse. She held both ends in one fist, leaving a doubled length of heavy metal links about two feet long. Each of the links glittered with veins of what might have been copper, forming sinuous text. You're a prisoner to tradition, big guy. You should learn to be a little more flexible. Careful. If you tell me you've got bracelets and a magic lariat in there, I may lose control of my sexual impulses. Elaine snorted. You can't lose what you've never had, she glanced up at me. I like the new shield, by the way. Yeah, sexy, huh? Complex, she replied. Balanced, strong, sophisticated. I'm not sure I could have made a focus for something like that. It took real skill, Harry. I felt myself actually blush, absurdly pleased by the compliment. Well, it isn't perfect. It takes a lot more juice than the old shield did. But I figure getting tired faster is far more preferable to getting dead faster. Seems reasonable, she said, and squinted at the docks. Can you tell me which boat it is? Not yet. But once you get two or three hundred yards over the water, that spell would have grounded out. So we know it's one of these at the docks. Elaine nodded. You want to lead? Yeah. We should be able to run it down fairly fast. Stay about ten or fifteen feet back from me. Elaine frowned. Why? Any closer than that and we'd be a dandy target. Someone could take us both out with one burst from a machine gun. Her face got a little pale. I thought you trusted him. I do, I said. But I don't know who might be there with him. And you've learned this kind of thing on the job? Machine guns? I felt my left hand twitch. Actually, I learned it with flamethrowers, but it applies to machine guns too. She took a deep breath, green eyes flickering over the docks and ships. I see. After you then. I readied my shield bracelet, got a good grip on my staff, and wrapped my amulet's chain around the first two fingers of my right hand, holding it up and out a little so that the amulet could dangle and indicate direction. I stepped out onto the docks and followed the spell toward the outermost row of moored boats. I was acutely conscious of Elaine's light, steady footsteps behind me, and the little slapping sighs of water hitting hulls. The summer sky was overcast with lead and occasional thunder rumbled through the air. The docks weren't nearly as crowded as they could be, but there were a couple of dozen people around, walking to and from boats, working on decks, getting ready to cast off, or else just now securing their lines. I was the only one wearing a big leather coat, and got a few odd looks. The amulet led me to the last slip of the dock farthest from shore. The boat moored there was a big one, at least for those docks, and looked like it might have been a stunt double for the boat in Jaws. It was old, battered, its white paint smudged to a faded, peeling gray, the planks of its hull often patched. The windows on the wheelhouse were obscured with dust and greasy smudges. It needed to be sandblasted and repainted, except for the lettering on its stern, which had apparently been added only recently in heavy black paint, water beetle. I walked 10 feet away and rechecked the amulet's indication, triangulating. The water beetle was the right boat. Hey, I called out, er, uh, ahoy, Thomas. Silence met my hail. I checked over my shoulder. Elaine had moved away to where she could see the little ship's entire deck while still standing a good 20 feet down the dock from me. What was the military term for that? Establishing a crossfire? Maybe it was creating a defilade. The point being, though, that if anything came gibbering up out of the boat's hold, we'd tear it up between us before you could say boogity boo. Of course, if anyone on the boat had hostile intent and an ounce of brains, they'd probably realize that too. Thomas, I shouted again. It's Harry Dresden. If someone on that boat meant me harm the smart thing to do would be to stay quiet and tempt me out onto the boat itself. That would minimize my chances of avoiding an attack and give them their best shot at taking me out in a hurry. Which is just about the only reliable way to do it when you're dealing with wizards. Give one of us time to catch our breath, and we can be a real handful. Okay, I said to Elaine, not taking my eyes off the boat. I'm going aboard. Is that smart? No, I glanced at her for a second. No, she admitted. Cover me. Cover you, Elaine shook her head. But she let one end of the chain slip loose from her hand and caught it in the other. She took a grip on it, leaving a couple of feet hanging from her left hand. Little flickers of light played along it. Subtle enough that I doubted anyone would notice if they weren't looking for it. I thought I was here on a job. Now it turns out I'm half of a buddy cop movie. Uh Uh-huh, I said. I'm the zany yet lovable one. You're the brainy conservative. What if I want to be the zany one? Then you can hop out there on the boat. Stop throwing the regulations out the window, she said, as if reciting a hastily memorized grocery list. We're supposed to catch the maniacs, not become them. Don't do anything crazy, because I've only got two and a half seconds to go until I retire. That's the spirit, I said, and hopped from the dock to the deck of the water beetle. I crouched, ready for trouble, but nothing came hurtling at me. One of the boats down the dock started up an engine that could not possibly have passed any kind of emissions test, including one for noise. Even so, though, I heard a thumping sound come from below the deck. I froze. But there was no further sound beyond the nearby rumbling engine, which, from the smell of it, was burning a lot of oil. I tried to move silently, pacing around the wheelhouse. It was a tight squeeze between the deck house and the rail as I sidled by to peer around the corner and down a short flight of stairs that led into the ship's cabin hold. I was aware of a presence, nothing specific really, beyond a sudden intuitive certainty that someone was down there and aware of me in return. I could probably dance around, listening and lurking, in hopes of finding some other indication of who was below, but not for long. People would notice me crouching and taking cover on the ship's deck for no apparent reason. Some of them would ignore it. Hell, most of them would ignore it. But inevitably, one of them would think it odd enough to give the cops a ring. Screw it, I said. I made sure my duster was covering my back, brought my shield up before me, and stepped quickly down the stairs and into the hold. I had maybe half a second of warning when someone came swinging down the stairs behind me, he must have been lying flat and out of sight atop the wheelhouse. I started to turn, but two heels hit my right shoulder blade in a double legged kick and propelled me forcefully down into the hold. The duster was hell on wheels for stopping claws and bullets, but it did me less good against the blunt impact of the kick, it hurt. I threw up my shield in front of me as I fell, and cut it again in an instant, since impacting a rigid plane of force would be much like slamming myself into a brick wall. The fluttering energy of the shield slowed me enough to control my fall and turn it into a roll. I came to my knees facing the stairway, as Thomas came hurtling down it with mayhem evidently in mind. He crouched on the stairs with one of those crooked knives the Gurkhas use clutched in one fist and a double-barreled shotgun with maybe six inches of barrel left to it in the other and pointed directly at my head. My brother was a little bit shy of six feet tall, slim, and made out of whipcord and steel cable. His eyes were alight with fury in his pale face. Faded from their usual thundercloud gray to an angry metallic silver that meant he was drawing upon his power as a vampire. His shoulder-length dark hair was bound back under a red bandana, And his do still looked more stylish than mine. Thomas, I snarled. Ow, what is wrong with you? You got one chance to surrender, asshole. Drop the spells and face the wall. Thomas, stop being a dick. I don't need this right now. Thomas sneered. Give it up. It's a good act, but I know you aren't Harry Dresden. There's no way the real Dresden would have come here with a woman like that instead of his dog. I blinked at him and dropped my shield. Now what the hell is that supposed to mean? I glared at him and added in a lower tone, hell's bells. If you weren't my brother, I'd paste you. Thomas lowered the shotgun, his expression startled. Harry? A shadow moved behind Thomas. Wait, I screamed. A length of heavy chain whipped around his throat. There was a flash of greenish light and a crackling explosion almost as loud as a gunshot. Thomas jerked into an agonized arch and was flung free of the chain to come hurtling into me. For the second time in 60 seconds, I got hit with my brother's full weight and slammed to the floor. My nose filled with the sharp scent of ozone and burned hair. Harry, called Elaine's voice, high and loud. Harry? I said to wait, I wheezed. She came hustling down the stairs and over to me. Did he hurt you? Not until you threw him on me, I snapped. Which wasn't true, but being repeatedly bashed about makes me grumpy. I touched a finger to my throbbing lip, and it came away wet with blood. Ow, Elaine said. Sorry, I thought you were in trouble. I shook my head to clear it and glanced at Thomas. His eyes were open and he looked startled. He was breathing, but his arms and legs lay limp. His lips moved a little. I leaned over and asked him, what? Ow, he whispered. I sat up a little relieved. If he was able to complain, he couldn't have been too bad off. What was that? I asked Elaine, Taser. Stored electricity? Yes. How do you refill it? Thunderstorm. Or I just plug it into any wall socket. Cool, I said. Maybe I should get one of those. Thomas's head moved, and one of his legs twitched and began to stir. Elaine whirled on him at once, her chain held taut between her hands, and little flashes of light began flickering through the decorative metal embedded into the links. Easy there, I said firmly. Back off. We came here to talk, remember? Harry, we should at least restrain him. He isn't going to hurt us, I said. Would you listen to yourself for a second, she said, her voice sharpening. Harry, despite heavy evidence to the contrary, you're telling me that you like and trust a creature whose specialty lies in subverting the minds of his victims. That's the way they all talk about a white court vampire, and you know it. That isn't what's happened here, I said. They say that too, Elaine insisted. I'm not saying any of this is your fault, Harry. But if this thing has gotten to you somehow, this is exactly how you'd be responding to it. He's not a thing, I snarled. His name is Thomas. Thomas took in a deep breath and then managed to say in a very feeble voice, It's all right. You can come out now. The forward wall of the cabin creaked and suddenly shifted, swinging out on a concealed hinge to reveal a small area behind it. Not quite as large as a typical walk-in closet. There were several women and two or three very small children huddled in that cramped space, and they emerged into the cabin warily. One of them was Olivia, the dancer. There, Thomas said quietly. He turned his head to Elaine there they are. And they're fine. Check them out for yourself. I stood up, my joints creaking, and studied the women. Olivia, I said. Warden, she said quietly. Are you all right? She smiled. Except for a muscle cramp I got in there. It's a little crowded. Elaine looked from the women to Thomas and back. Did he hurt you? Olivia blinked. No, she said. No. Of course not. He was taking us to shelter. Shelter, I asked. Harry, Elaine said, these are some of the women who have gone missing. I digested that for a second, and then turned to Thomas. What the hell is wrong with you? Why didn't you tell me what was going on? He shook his head, his expression still a little bleary. Reasons, didn't want you involved in this. Well, I'm involved now, I said. So how about you tell me what's going on? You were at my apartment, Thomas said. You saw my guest room wall. Yeah, they were being hunted. I had to figure out who was after them. Why? I got it, at least well enough to be able to figure out who they were planning to kill. It became a race between us. He glanced at the women and children. I got everyone I could out of harm's way and brought them here. He tried to move his head and winced. There are another dozen at a cabin, on an island about 20 miles north of here. A safe house, I mused. You were taking them to a safe house? Yeah. Elaine just stared at the women for a long moment, then at Thomas. Olivia, she asked. Is he telling the truth? As far as I know, The girl answered, he's been a perfect gentleman. I'm pretty sure nobody but me caught it. But at her words, Thomas's eyes flashed with a cold and furious hunger. He may have treated the women gently and politely, but I knew that there was a part of him that hadn't wanted to. He closed his eyes tightly and started taking deep breaths. I recognized the ritual he used to control his darker nature and said nothing of it. Elaine talked quietly with Olivia, who began making introductions. I leaned against a wall, unless maybe since we were on a ship, it was a bulkhead, and rubbed my finger at a spot between my eyebrows, where a headache was coming on. The damned oily smoke smell from the nearby ship's sputtering engine wasn't helping matters any either, and my head snapped up, and I flung myself up the stairs and onto the deck, That big, ugly boat had been moved from its moorings and now floated directly beside the water beetle, blocking it from the open waters of the lake. Its engine was pouring out so much blue-black oil smoke that it could not have been anything but deliberate. A choking haze had already enveloped the water beetle, and I couldn't see beyond the next row of docks. A figure hurtled from the deck of the boat to land in a tigerish crouch on the little area of open deck at the rear of the water beetle. Even as I watched, its features, those of an unremarkable man in his mid-thirties, began to change. His jaws elongated, face extending into something of a muzzle, and his forearms lengthened, the nails extending into dirty-looking talons. He faced me, shoulders distorting into hunched knots of powerful muscle, bared his teeth and let out a shrieking roar. A ghoul, a tough, dangerous opponent, but not impossible to beat. Then, more figures appeared on the deck of the other ship, half veiled by the thick smoke. Their limbs crackled and contorted, and a dozen more ghouls opened their mouths in ear-splitting echo of the first. Thomas, I shouted, half choking on the smoke. (laughs) We've got a problem. 13 ghouls flung themselves directly at me, jaws gaping and slavering, talons reaching, eyes gleaming with feral bloodlust and rage. Fucking boats.